Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Park. Give me a woo. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at San Diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. What's up? This your boy, Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. This episode reenacts scenes of war. You'll hear gunfire and descriptions of violence. Listener discretion advised. Tonight, Japan is at war with the United States and Great Britain. Tokyo has so announced in a declaration. In a few moments, we will switch to points where battles are raging in the Pacific. But first... Let's hear from Ankara, Turkey, where the news of this new Hi. war may or may not... I'm Jacqueline Raposo. That's the beginning of a news clip from December 7th, 1941. The day the Japanese Empire bombed Pearl Harbor and the day before the United States officially joined the Allies in World War II. As I listen to veterans of this time share their stories, I can't help but notice how, on that one day, the size of their world exploded too. The Navy were rattling hopping. Great Day and Iwo Jima, Okinawa. I was in Paris August 16th with a free French. We took the big ship from Manila to Mindoro, and after the war ended, we took another LSD or whatever it was to Mindanao. Welcome to Service, Stories of Hunger and War, a production from iHeartRadio and me, your host. That last clip you heard was from our episode with Pasquale D'Ambrosio, who left his New Hampshire home with the Army to sail to the Philippines. Today, we spend time with Frank DeVita, a Brooklyn boy who crossed the globe over almost three years in the Coast Guard. Pat and Frank and our next few veterans all came from close-knit communities. They knew their neighbors and, after the war, married childhood sweethearts. They had to wait for the news, listening on the radio or going to the movie theater. They couldn't internet research or download a map as words like Epernay and Okinawa became part of their common language, like I'm doing as I listen and learn. Before they deployed, there were things about the world they just couldn't know. So we're all on the same page. Here are a few things they could have known. They would definitely have known that the four big allied powers were Britain, France, and the Soviet Union, along with the United States. And the Axis powers were the German Nazis, the Italian fascists, and the Japanese, who by late 1941 had occupied most of Europe and so many of the Pacific Islands. They might have known that in North Africa, 
Italian-colonized Libyans were fighting British-colonized Egyptians, and thousands of Africans were being forced to fight for their colonizers abroad. With the Spanish only recently post-Civil War, and Latin American countries pulled between Axis and Allied loyalties, they might not know what to make of such civilians. While they would have known of the heavy bombing all over Britain by the German Luftwaffe, they might not quite have understood how vital civilian farming was for survival there. And as rumors about the barbarity of the Japanese were flying stateside after Pearl Harbor, there's no way these kids could have known who they were going to face when they then headed to the Pacific themselves. Such is the case today. A feisty, patriotic 17-year-old, Frank joined the Coast Guard because they were the branch that could send him out the soonest, and he knew he wanted to defend his country. What he couldn't know was that what lied ahead was active combat, facing fears and foreigners, and decisions that would shove him into adulthood. But what he ate, and how he found or shared food, seemed to bring Frank a little sense of home, and a little sense of fun, no matter where on the globe he was floating. So now, from his home in New Jersey, let's slow down and sit with Frank DeVita. My name is Frank DeVita of the U.S. Coast Guard. I was a gunner's mate third class. I had a very good family life. Born and raised in Brooklyn, yeah. My dad worked for the Navy for 30 years. And my mom stayed home all, all the time. And she raised all these children. Two or four children. My sister Agnes was the oldest. Then my brother Silvio came along. Then I came along. And then my brother Daniel came along. We had a good family life. But we were born during the Depression. I would say we were poor, but we were on the borderline. And we didn't feel it because during the Depression, everybody was poor. I mean, the subway was five cents. Loaf of bread was five cents. Bottle of milk was five cents. We lived near Coney Island, and there was a trolley that went from near my street to Coney Island. It was five cents. I walked to save the five cents so I could buy a hot dog in Coney Island. Hot dog was five cents. My mom was not a good cook, but she was a wonderful mother. And my dad, too. He designed all the uniforms for the Navy, and he came across a lot of big admirals and generals and all that kind of stuff. Once a month, one of these generals or admirals would come for dinner. And my mom's favorite dinner at that time, she used to make roast beef with rice and brown gravy. And she made a great cake. Pearl Harbor Day, there was an admiral there and a captain. And when we used to have company, my mom was very strict. No children at the table. So she was feed us early. And then when the company came, we would leave. But I was a big giant fan, football giants, and I wanted to listen to the giant game. So I was in the living room, I had the radio very low. And they were in the kitchen doing their thing. They interrupted the game to say that the Japanese just bombed Pearl Harbor. I regret to tell you that very many American lives have been lost. In addition, American ships have been reported torpedoed on the high seas between San Francisco and Honolulu. So I went into the dining room and I said, excuse me. And my mom says, I told you not to come with me like this. But I have important news. What's so important? The Japanese just bombed Pearl Harbor. This admiral kept them, but they was, they left. And that's how I remember Pearl Harbor. 
My mother had a very hard time. She had three sons and we were all in combat. My oldest brother was in the army. I was in the Coast Guard. My young brother was in the Marines. She kept it hidden because she was a very quiet person, but I'm sure she prayed a lot. I was a gunner's mate in the back of the ship called Stern. It was four anti-aircraft guns, 20 millimeter. When there wasn't an invasion, I was in charge of those four guns. Since I was a gunner's mate, they gave me what's called a gunnery shack, which was a room about eight feet by eight feet. And in that shack, I had all my tools to fix the guns and ammunition. And I decided that's where I was going to live. Because, you see, I'm a very finicky eater. I always, since the day I was born. When I went through the child line the first time, you got a tray with five or six compartments in it. And they slapped the food on. So the first time I went through the child line, that spaghetti, it looked like glue. So this guy had this thing up like this. I don't want any. He said, how come you look like you're Italian? I said, that's why I don't want any. I decided I was going to live in that shack. So when we were in Boston, I stopped in Boston. I bought a frying pan, coffee pot, and a hot plate. I stocked up all the canned goods I could find, pork and beans and soup, and I was all set. But then I had a desire. I wanted meat or fish or something like that. I used to have to watch sometimes what they call the four to eight. You want to watch for four hours, you were for eight hours. So I had the night watch that time, and my job was to walk around and see if anything was wrong. And I went into the officer's quarters. I opened the refrigerator, steaks. So I stole some steaks from the officers and I brought it back to my shack and I cooked steaks. I brought ship very tight compartments. The guys the next day, they said, goddamn officer, we eating steaks last night. But I never told them. I'm like an eel. I don't get caught. Samuel Chase, an attack transport, used to bring the troops into the beach with little Higgins boats. Higgins boat is about 30 feet long and it holds between 30 and 32 troops and it's flat bottom so it could go up on the beach. We had 1,100 troops aboard ship that we took into the beach in Normandy. 5,000 ships went into the invasion. 5,000. We went in with three other ships, the Dickman, the Bailey, and the Enrico all attack transports, all Coast Guard. People don't realize that most of the troops that went into the beach were brought in by Coast Guard. And since I was a gunner's mate, I was assigned one of the machine guns. About three weeks before the invasion, they took our machine guns away. And my job, see, there's a ramp in front of the boat. That's the only steel on the whole boat, because the boat is made out of plywood. So my job became to drop this ramp. We're supposed to invade on June 5th, but there was a big storm, and we called off the invasion till June 6th. It was a little foggy and drizzly. It was a June day, but it felt like an October, November day. It was, not a, it was not a good day. So the water was still very rough, and you wouldn't think, you know, the English Channel, but it was like an ocean. The waves were very high, and the boat was going like this. We were going to unload the troops about 4 o'clock. About two o'clock, we started feeding them eggs, sausages, pancakes, ice cream, everything that you could think of. It was the worst thing we could have done. We overfed them. Some of these guys were never on a boat in their whole life. They were seasick. On the first wave, you lost six boats immediately. 
one boat that was hit by an 88. 88 is a gun that the Germans had, the best gun in the whole war. This 88 hit one of our boats and killed one of our men on the boat. And two of the men, they were blown out of the boat into the water and they crawled ashore. They took the guns from dead soldiers and fought with the army all day long. We couldn't get on the beach because there were too many obstacles on the beach. Now, I'm in the back of the boat, and these guys are in front of me, all, and the wind took it. I was full of vomit. So we got maybe 20 or 30 yards away from the beach, and the coxes had dropped the ramp. Well, I never heard them because the fire of the cannons and the two big diesel engines behind me. He yelled out again, he says, drop the ramp. And this time I heard him. But the only problem was, there was 30 machine guns along the beach there. And they were firing at us. And they were hitting the ramp on the boat because the ramp was steel. And the machine went like a typewriter. Hitting that ramp. And he told me to drop the ramp. And I knew, even though I was a little kid, I knew when I dropped that ramp, the machine guns that were hitting the ramp would come into the boat and kill me. I froze for a while. And then he says, God damn, Bebita, drop the effing ramp. And I had no choice, I dropped the ramp. And the machine guns came into the boat. And about 14 guys immediately were killed. So now, I was three quarters of the way back. And there was two kids next to me. I was 19, they were 19, but I called them kids. They were standing next to me and they thought they would be safe. But the Germans had machine guns up on the hill. One guy was maybe four feet away from me. He got hit across the belly. Machine gun bullets across the belly. I don't know how this guy survived. His belly was ripped wide open. He was bleeding. We couldn't do anything for him. We had no morphine. And the other kid who had red hair, I'll never forget. Machine gun. Machine gun. Took his helmet off. And he fell in front of me. And you know, it's a fallacy. Everybody thinks when a soldier's dying, he reaches out to God. Not true. He reaches out to Mama. And they cry. Mama. He was crying, help, help, help. I couldn't help him. I couldn't even help myself. I had no morphine to give him. I knew he was going to die because half of his head was gone. So I didn't know what to do. I had nothing. So I started praying Lord's Prayer. I don't know if he heard me. But for some reason, he stopped saying, help me, help me, help me. He was lying at my feet. And I reached down and I touched his hand because I wanted him to know he wasn't alone. He squeezed my hand. He died. He was just a little boy. After the break. And I said to myself, what the hell just happened here? And why am I alive? Stay with us. Ready? Let's 
Lego. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a golf course. 70 courses. Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursions? We're watching. Time for chill vibes. Beach yoga. How about a garden tour? Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at sandiego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbionica is your solution to great-tasting, all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or toxins. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbionica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbionica.com. C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney Collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Welcome back to Service, stories of hunger and war from iHeartRadio. I'm Jacqueline Raposo, and we left Coast Guard gunner's mate Frank DeVita on D-Day, June 6th, 1944. Here's President Roosevelt the morning after. My fellow Americans, last night when I spoke with you about the fall of Rome, I knew at that moment that troops of the United States and our allies were crossing the channel in another and greater operation. It has come to pass with success thus far. And so... In this poignant hour, I ask you to join with me in prayer. Frank doesn't know how many wounded they carried back to the Lucky Chase that day, but 380 soldiers' bodies returned to his ship alone. When all is said and done, between that June 6th and August 30th, when the Germans retreated back across the Seine, 425,000 casualties were split almost equally between the Allied and Axis forces. We pick up Frank's story when his 18-hour battle finally starts winding down. After the 15th wave, they started bringing the boats up. Crane came down like a cherry picker to take the boat, put it on the deck. The boat looked like shredded paper from the machine gun bullets. And all the crews went down to the mess hall they had cheese sandwiches and coffee. And my stomach was a rumble. I, I couldn't eat anything. So I didn't want to go down. Plus, I was full of blood and vomit all over my uniform. I must have stunk to high heaven. 
I walked to my guns in the stern of the ship. Somehow I felt like I was safe there. It was late at night, and I sat down on the cold deck, and I said to myself, what the hell just happened here? And why am I alive? It got dark, and I turned around to see if anybody was with me. And then I saw, stuck against the bulkhead, like a cord of wood, all the body. And I cried myself to sleep. I just want everybody to know, I am not a hero. I'm a survivor. How I survived with all those machine gun bullets flying around me. God was with me, my mom was with me. I survived. A lot of them did not survive. I slept for three days, and the captain knew what we went through, so he didn't bother us. But after three days, he got on the loudspeaker. He says, the fun is over. Let's get back to work. My ship went back up to Glasgow, Scotland. That's where our home base was. When we pulled into the Clyde, and everybody's waving as the ship went in, because we were bringing food. So they were very happy to see us. And I spotted this girl, and we made eye contact. So the next day, I was walking along the street, and behold, I saw this girl. It was one movie out in the old town. I said to her, you want to go to the movies? I walked home that night, and I met her mom, and she made some tea. They had nothing to eat. At that time, it was very strict ration. So I said to myself, I'm going to get something to feed these people. I had a friend of mine. He was a cook aboard ship, and I said, Jerry, I need a ham. They used to have a ham. They had a tin shaped of a ham. So he gave me one of those tins. So the next night, I went back and I said, I got a present for your mom. And I gave her that ham. Well, she split the ham with all the neighbors. But you think I gave her gold? I was in the service 33 months altogether. 27 months was a boy ship. See, I love my mom, I love my family. They're very family-oriented. You know how Italians are. On Saturday, you gotta have the veal covers. Sunday, you have to have the pasta, otherwise you're not Italian. I miss that, I miss that, yeah. And my mom had a sister, she was a great, great cook. She used to send me packages, V-mail they called it. And sometime I get a package, eggplant in the jars, and the guys would say, what the hell is that? I said, that's eggplant, taste it, oh no. Then they taste it, big mistake I ever made. Then I had a splitter with them. August 15th, we went down to Marseille and did the second invasion. And the second invasion was a lot easier. They didn't have that many machine guns or 88s. No one was wounded or killed aboard my ship. And we went through the Panama Canal. My ship was not big enough to go by itself. So we tied a submarine alongside of us and we went through the canal together. Now we had an ice cream machine aboard ship and the submarines wanted ice cream. So we'll make a trade for you. Torpedoes running alcohol. We'll give you ice cream, and you give us alcohol. We got the alcohol, they got the ice cream, and we all got drunk. We got drunk. And then we went to the Philippines. You know, the Japanese, the war was coming to an end, but they wouldn't surrender. So they had these airplanes. They used to put a 500-pound bomb in it. They would fly into the ships. It was a suicide mission. And the planes would fly, and I would fire at them. I don't know if I ever hit them, I'll be honest with you. But I did fire at the kamikazes. But they sank a lot, a lot of shit. 
and they end up my war in uh, Osaka and Yokohama in Japan. The war had just ended. I was an MP. They gave me a gun and a billy stick. There was a wall there. I stood next to that wall for four hours. I didn't move. I was scared. And I had so many stories about the Japanese. They cut princes' heads off. I think if my mother came along, I would have shot her. It was wrong. The Japanese people were so nice. One time I was walking along the street, and this Japanese woman came up to me. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Why are you thanking me? She says, the war's over. These are the people, not the government. They suffered terribly. We bombed the hell out of them. They had no food. We started feeding them basic army food, K-rations, stuff like that. We started feeding them. That's the first thing we did. I was discharged in 1946. I had a lot more knowledge than I never had when I first went into service. They taught me a lot. And going from country to country, meeting different people, that was an education in itself. A lot of the military guys hated the Japanese after the war. I didn't feel like that. I felt once the war was over, our enemies became our friends. During the war, I hated them. I actually hated them. It's either you or them. But then when the war was over, why should I hate some people? They're human beings. They get up in the morning, put their shoes on the same way I put my shoes on. Different nationality and different religion, but they're just like us. They're just like us. You can't hold a grudge on them the rest of your life. I'm a lucky person. I'm lucky that I survived D-Day. My mom was on my shoulder all the time. You see, when a serviceman is killed, they send a telegram to the mother. Uh, Mrs. DeVito, sorry to notify you, but your son has been killed. I don't want my mother to get that telegram. I was determined she was not going to get that telegram. And she didn't. Yeah. Frank's brothers Silvio and Daniel came home safely, too. There are no gold stars in their family. He went on to marry his high school sweetheart, Dorothy. They had three children, six grandchildren, and five great-grandchildren. Dot was a prolific cook, and Frank misses her chicken and rice more than anything. Frank has since returned to Scotland and to the beaches of Normandy. He says he still sees a very different beach than most people see there. In our next episode, we spend time with John Bestricka, an Army infantryman from Ohio who was aboard Frank's Lucky Chase on that June 6th before continuing into Normandy. We'll hear that finding food during wartime is not quite as easy without your own personal gunnery shack kitchen, but that no matter where you are, V-mail, that's victory mail, is always, always appreciated. And along those lines, I invite you to leave some V-email for our veterans via a message form at servicepodcast.org. And you can find more audio clips of Frank and photos of him and the Lucky Chase on Instagram and Facebook. We are at Service Podcast. And please, invite your veteran loved ones to the table, too, to share their stories. Service is a production of iHeartRadio. This episode was produced and edited by me, Jacqueline Raposo. Our supervising producer is Gabrielle Collins. Our executive producer is Christopher Hasiotis. Our art is by Girl Friday. The soundscape behind Frank's D-Day story was crafted by Ambience Hub. Thank you to the Greatest Generations Foundation for connecting us with the DeVitas for this episode. You can sponsor a veteran's visit to hallowed grounds, memorials, and cemeteries through their foundation at tggf.org. Thank you for listening. 
and thank you, those who are serving and those who have served. Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach! Give me great food. Tacos! Give me adventure. Hiking! Give me a date night. Sunset cruise! Give me some smiles. Cheese! Give me more beaches. Beaches! What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Awards Watch says Liam Neeson is at his best. Don't miss In the Land of Saints and Sinners. Having left his dark past behind, retired hitman Finbar Murphy, played by Neeson, leads a quiet life in a remote coastal Irish town. But when a menacing crew of terrorists arrive, Finbar is drawn into a vicious game of cat and mouse, forcing him to choose between exposing his secret identity or defending his friends and neighbors. In the land of saints and sinners, from Samuel Goldwyn Films and Sony Pictures Home Entertainment, watch it now on digital. Rated R.